Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys Podcast. This is a very powerful episode. I sit down with Rebecca Foltz, who talks about her time at several churches in Northern California, Southern California, and ending up in Nevada. And she just gets extremely transparent about three situations of sexual assault that took place across these different churches and how each church worked proactively to cover up those situations. We talk a lot about mental health and the way that that affected it. We talk about the church's view on sexuality, and we talk a little bit about uh, the college culture at Golden State Baptist College and the way that uh, Jack Treber actually personally responded uh, to one of the allegations that was made uh, when Rebecca called from her church in San Diego to ask him for his advice. And so it's a really heavy episode, but also a really powerful one. Uh, Rebecca's an amazing fighter, survivor, and her perseverance and her strength through all of this is really incredible. And I know it's going to be encouraging to you guys. So uh, be sure to listen to the very end. I think she has some really important uh, takeaways that people need to be thinking about when we think about abuse within the IFP movement. And really, I think this is one of my favorite conversation just gets really real, uh, really deep. And I think really, uh, hits the heart. I think Rebecca really hits the heart of some of the abuse issues within this movement. So, uh, be sure to check it out. Uh, let me know what you guys think and, uh, be sure to share this with someone who you think it would be helpful for. I think everyone needs to listen to at least this episode. I mean, it's whether you're a pastor, whether you're a church, whether you're a survivor yourself or trying to help a survivor, uh, there's something in here that you need to hear. So, Without any further ado, here's my interview with Rebecca Foltz. All right, Becca, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. I know I gave a little bit of context about who you are in the introduction, but can you just add a little bit more context for people who are listening about who you are and how you first got introduced to the IFP movement? Well, thank you for allowing me to um, 
talk with you today. I really appreciate that. My name is Becca, and I was actually born into the IFB. I'm the oldest of four children. Both of my parents attended Hiles Anderson College. That's where they met. After they had been married for a few years, they moved to California. My dad began working at Hopewell Baptist Church, my Gray's church. And I remember there was a lot that happened there, but he was the assistant pastor there. And then um, he moved on and started pastoring his own churches when I was eight years old. And I'm always curious because for everybody it's different, especially people who've been born into it. Was there a time where you had a, you know, where you felt an overwhelmingly positive attitude toward the IFB, the churches that you were in, or are your earliest memories, you know, negative? What was that trajectory? Did you have a positive experience with the IFB early on? So it's a little confusing Um, for those that have grown up in it. I was completely sold out to everything that they taught. I never even, even from the time I was very young, I never even considered that there was really any other life out there. I just thought everyone that didn't go to our church or churches like us was just really bad. But I mean, really bad things started happening to me when I was very young. And so I always had this constant sense of fear and feeling of not fitting in from the time I was probably four years old. What was kind of the first thing that happened where you kind of noticed like something's actually not right or something feels really off here? After my dad started pastoring, I just noticed a lot of how everything was the church. Um, And I noticed that more as I became older, as I became a teenager, I was going to every youth camp with Tim Rule's church, um, the camp that they put on, every youth conference at North Valley. And I just started seeing like, I was a really good kid. Like literally the worst thing that I ever did in high school was watch like a Hannah Montana music video. And I thought that I was probably going to go to hell because I did that. Um, I was like, went to the altar at camp and like confessed my sin and thought I was just the worst person ever. But I struggled a lot in high school just with feeling like I wasn't saved. I was going to go to hell, even though I had made the profession of faith that when I was five and then again as a teenager and so that was just always a constant struggle even though I wasn't doing anything wrong I was always striving for that you know perfect relationship that they say that you have with God but I never really started questioning things until God until probably I was I had graduated from college and I was married that was Mm. the first time I really started questioning things there were a lot of things that I saw, but I would, I was really good at giving excuses for why they were happening or for why right. things were being allowed or not allowed. And when you say you saw a lot of things, what, what does that mean as far as the, the context of what you experienced? Um, well, the first thing that I remember, um, I was sexually abused when I was four mm-hmm. by um, a man in the church at Hopewell. Okay. And... Um, a few weeks later, he actually committed suicide, and it was this big ordeal. Supposedly, he was this great man in the church, and actually, it just made me sick because the big conference that they had at North Valley, Mike Gray preached, and he brought that up, how he was this great man, and then he mm-hmm. lost him to suicide, and like he had just, like literally had just done that to me, and when I had told my parents, it was just 
like later on, I was scared at first. It was years later before I said anything because the rule was like, if you got in trouble, then you would get in trouble again at home. So I right. thought I was just in trouble from what happened. When that was swept under the the rug, saying that it would hurt the church if anything was done. And then I had friends like that had had things happen to them and it was swept under the rug saying it would hurt the church if anything was done or if it was turned over to the police, then it would look bad on God and bad on the church and then people would stop coming. I can't even tell you how many times I saw that happen. So many times that happened. Probably went the hardest time I was in college and one of my good friends that was there with me, we had both been struggling with cutting and both of us had gone through similar things with children with a sexual abuse. We were cutting and she got kicked out and I didn't. Hmm. And it was just like, why would she get kicked out and not me, you know? And that was just kind of like, this is so two-faced and just seeing things like that over and over and over again just showed me that they didn't really care about the people it was all about the appearance the appearances and what people thought about them that was actually not what was actually happening and i'm assuming college experience was golden state was that the was that where you ended up attending or was it if if i'm guessing southern california it was either west coast or golden state yes it was golden state and what was that experience like transitioning to Golden State from your background? Obviously, you were already kind of involved in that world through youth conferences, through being affiliated with all the conferences and things. What was the transition to the college? And do you feel like the college situation felt like it was getting weirder or, you know, more strict? Or did you feel like it was a pretty natural transition? Honestly, I felt like I had freedom when I went to college, which if anyone knows (laughs) anything about Golden State... You would think that was crazy. But um, yeah, my home was very strict growing up. I wasn't allowed to like go out with friends and stuff like that. It was very strict. Like there was obviously like the no pants, but my parents went further with like the skirts. Like there were no slits in the skirts at all. You know, you no sleeveless, no swimsuits, you know, two fingers on your shirt couldn't be lower than two fingers. So when I went to college, I felt like, I was living the dream. I mean, I remember buying a skirt that had a slit in it for the first time and I thought like I was bad, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I just adjusted. I thought I thought it was great. I thought it was really nice like being able to hang out with friends. There were like a lot of inconsistencies I saw, like I said with my friend. Mm-hmm. I had friends like they would do stuff, but it wasn't even bad things like I know people would go to movies and get kicked out for a thing, you know, just stuff like that. Like, it's nothing bad. We're not about liquor, drinking liquor, and uh, smoking, and dope, and going to the movie house, and uh, going to places you should not go. We're for young people to come here and say, my heart is open to God, and I have a tender spirit, and I want to grow to seek God's will for my life. So we'll work with you. You'll have to get some demerits not making your bed, well, those are childish things properly, or or forgetting to sign in or sign out or doing something, those things. But we're talking about rebellious sins. We're not interested in it. I'm interested in dedicating my life these days that God gives me to young people that say, here am I, Lord, send me. I want to be trained for God. Right. It's just, and I saw like girls, yeah, I saw girls that, they were really, really good girls, and they would get 
demerits for their shirt being too tight when it was definitely not a tight shirt. Just stuff like that. You know, I, I got demerits. Right. I got 50 demerits one time for sitting closer than six inches to my boyfriend at the time. Like, <laughs> and I almost got kicked out because of it. <laughs> and um, what did you go to college for? And did you end up graduating? Did you end up leaving early? Um, how did that look for you? Yeah, so um, I went for elementary education, which is basically a joke. Um, and basically one of two options if you're a girl. You do elementary education, secondary education, or um, I forget what they call it, but basically, yeah, secretarial yeah. classes. Yeah. So It was a joke. I, rem- I literally remember being in college classes where one of them, we had to plan a wedding. Like, that, w- <laughs> that was what we were doing and like another one on our test we had to like draw the place where we got saved I was like is this like for real right now like this is what we're doing in a college class this is this is college level come on but yeah I went all four years this is actually almost embarrassing but like when I graduated I received the chancellor's award like I was like the girl you know so you were really good at drawing (laughs) basically (laughs) well I was really good at acting and following all the rules and doing whatever they said. I was a great puppet for them. Um, You know, they thought, they thought I was great. And I was following all the rules. That was the crazy thing. Like I didn't question it. I did literally everything I was supposed to there. And I was still struggling all the time, emotionally and mentally. Yeah. Post-college, did you go work at a ministry? Did you, you know, did you, do what was probably expected? Did you get married to someone in ministry and head out that way? Or what was kind of the path out of that? I actually began dating what later, who later became my husband my freshman year. And we dated the entire three and a half years of school. Okay. And we got married a week after we both graduated from college. And we had, oh gosh, I forgot the terminology right now, but where you go to different churches and you like, Oh, candidate, basically. Oh, you like candidate, basically. Right. Okay. For positions. So we went all over. We went to like five different churches across the country. We considered ourselves more, this is so embarrassing now, but we considered ourselves like more extreme. Like we had more rules. Like we got one offer at a church and we turned it down because the pastor was okay with using screens in the church and we didn't feel like we could right. do that. We could settle into yeah. that. So we actually ended up moving down to San Diego. So this is like the weird thing. And this has happened all the time in IFB churches. Hmm. So the church couldn't afford to actually hire us. So right. they had us move down there and we could live in one of their parsonages on the church property. Then we could work like secular jobs and then work at the church. So uh-huh. basically what ended up happening, I worked the secular job so that my husband could work full time at the church because well, he did not want to work a secular job. I'm racking my brain trying to think what San Diego church because I live in uh, I live near Palm Springs. So um, <laughs> so I'm right near there. The pastor that was at the church, he um, when we went there, he actually went to Hiles. Mm, okay. um, but before that, it was a different pastor. And that pastor or the former pastor actually works at North Valley at their college okay. now. But so it was like completely like Kyle's mindset. 
You know what I mean? Which is pretty much what you guys were looking for was a step stricter than Golden State. Right. Right. Well, stricter than Golden State or like Golden State, you know. So it was just this craziness. But that's what we thought we were doing the right thing. We were completely like sold out on everything. We wanted to serve the Lord with our lives. We started there. And that that was the fall of 2008 when we moved there. We started working there. Our pastor actually slowly started changing on some things. So like he let his wife wear pants and, but my husband wouldn't let me wear pants yet. Right. Like it, it wasn't okay for me. And just things like that, like going to the movies was okay. And then like slowly other things started changing. Like I remember the first time I had a drink. It was a couple of years later, but like it was like a big deal. Wait, you were you on were you on staff still at that point or no? Yes. Oh wow. Okay. So and that was this, okay there or no? Well, yes. So the thing that happened there, the pastor started going like crazy. Like I didn't we didn't realize everything at the time, but he was getting addicted to drugs. Okay. Um so he was getting on like all kinds of stuff. And right making decisions and a whole lot of things happened. So from the time of 2008 until I think it was 2012 when we actually left, I had been sexually assaulted by a man in the church. Mm. And then I was forced to stay quiet about it. And when that happened and I came forward with it, they actually brought the man in. He admitted to everything. And then they called CLA to see what they should do, you know, damage control. And they said that they should fire me for it because it would look bad on the church. So the best thing to do would be to fire us so that we weren't part of it anymore. So thankfully he, well, it probably would have been better if he didn't. But at the time I thought like, Oh, he's so nice. Like he's not firing me. But then he like in front of people, like in front of my husband, in front of, because only a couple people knew that it actually happened. He told me to go press charges against the man like Lily. So I literally went to the police station, filed a report. I get back from the police station and then the pastor pulls me in his office and he tells me that if I actually follow through with everything, then he's going to say that I lied and that I actually wanted it and like this whole thing. And then, then we would be fired. So he said, I drop it and just tell people that I wasn't comfortable with going through with all of it. So that's what I did. So like that happened. And then there were at the same time, this was all happening. There were lawsuits on the church to the pastor and my husband saying that they stole money from the church. It was a, it was a huge mess. And then it came out like he was on drugs. It was crazy. Like, I can't tell you how crazy it was. Like, we would sleep with like bats by our door because there was like a huge church split. Like people were really mad. Like cops showed up at the church one day. People found out that I was assaulted and they all showed up one day at the church and there was like yelling matches. And then he was allowed to come back and I was made to stand up on the platform and just like stay there while he was sitting down there. It was awful. (laughs) It was really awful. So finally I told my husband, like, I can't do this anymore. Like, we have to leave. Like, I, I will not. Like, I can't. I was falling apart. Emotionally, I was a wreck just from everything going on and all the secrets and just dealing with everything. So 
we ended up moving to Las Vegas at that point. The church kind of like dissolved. I don't even know for sure if it's still in existence now or not. Like the name was changed and they got a different pastor. Like obviously they fired that pastor. I don't even know. Yeah. I don't know if that church is still in existence or not. I feel like I'm going super fast. Am I going really fast? There's a couple things I want to hit on, but you know what? Let's just keep going through and then let's circle back and hit a couple things. I don't want to, I definitely don't want to lose the end of your story or at least the end of your IFB story. And then I can circle back with a couple follow-up questions because I, I think you're doing a great job communicating your story right now. Like I'm not, I'm not missing a ton of information. I'll probably just go back and ask for some context here in a little bit. Sounds good. Um, so that's, we moved to Las Vegas in the summer of 2012. Yeah, I believe it was the summer of 2012. My husband and I had talked and we had agreed, you know, let's just like not be in ministry, you know, like it's just not working out. We've, we had seen so many things during our ministry, like that pastor was beyond controlling like we found out he would like listen in and stuff and go into our house when we weren't there and look around and just do all kinds of things he did a lot of things that were not okay so when we moved to Vegas we were like you know let's just take a step back let's find a church that's not IFB that we can just you know grow or just just be you know we just needed like some healing time so he agreed we weren't going to work at a church anymore. We found, um, it was a Baptist church, but it was like Southern Baptist kind of, but okay. uh, like on the, between like Southern Baptist and like non-denominational, but it definitely had like, it had your, it was like a very large church. It ran like 3000 people, okay. but, but they had like the praise and worship band, but they had like all the standards and like the beliefs and like the doctrine and theology that a Southern Baptist would have, if that makes sense. Right. We started attending there and I started working at a large Christian school in the area. And my husband was just doing like odd jobs because, you know, our degree, you know, is not worth shit. So it's hard to get like a regular job. So especially like his degree was pastoral theology. So that doesn't transfer well to the real world. So we were just kind of going to church, like doing our thing. And then we had been there probably six months and my husband came to me and said that he wanted to be in ministry again. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to work at that church that we were going to. So he started getting close to some of the pastors that were on staff there. I didn't think he would actually do it just because I don't know. In my head, I thought, you know, he's not really going to. He wants to. He thinks he wants to, but he's not going to. He actually ended up starting an internship at the church. He did that for a little over a year, and then they ended up hiring him at the church. And that's kind of where everything kind of really went downhill for me. I don't know if it was the fact that we were back in ministry again, and everything was coming back or what but I was struggling a lot emotionally 2017 was when it was really bad and I ended up attempting suicide and he didn't want to tell anyone he told one of the pastors but then we like kind of covered it up we didn't tell like any of our family I guess we didn't want him to know how bad I was struggling I'm not really sure why after that it was just a complete 
downhill for me because I kept struggling after that the next few months. Um, and I'm not faulting my husband for this at the time, but he was trying to find answers and we were both super still like into the church and, you know, that was our world. We like lived, lived, breathed everything church. And so he started trying to look for reasons why I was struggling so bad. He ended up finding some book online and he thought that I was actually possessed with demons. It got to the point where he um, took me to Seattle to have this pastor like pray demons out of me. After that, I remember, I remember coming home and I've never ever felt so alone in my entire life. I was so scared of the whole process. Like I didn't believe in it. I didn't believe anything that was being done, but I was so scared to go against it and to try and like fight it that I just did whatever they said. And when we got back from that trip, I started going online to like chat rooms to try and find people because nobody from the church talked to me. Like it got out what I had done and I literally had no one, literally no one. Everyone from the IFB movement didn't talk to me anymore because, you know, I had changed. I was wearing pants now. They could see like I was doing things that they didn't agree with. So I wasn't accepted there. And now I wasn't accepted at this church because, you know, I wasn't trusting God enough or whatever. I started talking to people online and that's when like I, my eyes just started to become open and I met people that were like my friend for the first time ever. Mm. And during that time, like our marriage like struggled really badly and that's when everything just fell apart every every day was a struggle for us um we tried to fix it we tried going to counseling and he was still really in the church I wasn't wanting to go to church anymore it got found out that he had actually been stealing money from the church that he was working at with everything in our marriage like a lot of things came out like I was put on medication and it changed me a lot and I ended up cheating on him and so there it was just a big mess between just between everything with the church and we weren't allowed to go to that church anymore when they found out they fired my husband instantly and I was just through with it he was still wanting to do ministry and I was like I am literally not doing this anymore I refuse to live my life like this and so I told him I wanted a divorce and he tried so hard for that not to happen, but there was no way. We ended up moving to Ohio and we got divorced and he's married again. Hmm. And now I'm, I don't go to church anymore. I haven't been, I went one time before Thanksgiving. And the hmm. last time I went before that was last Easter, but I literally can't bring myself to a church every time I try to go. It's like convulsions, like crying and it's awful the everything that it brings back um yeah. from the churches that i've been in so yeah. i guess that's kind yeah. of like the end of yeah. coming out of it so i yeah, don't think I, that i completely came out until i actually moved to ohio because that's when i actually like came on my own and started really thinking for myself it was a process like right. that last year in vegas for sure but i didn't fully come to myself i don't think until i was here in Ohio. 
what you're saying makes complete sense of like it would be difficult and i mean your story you know kind of circling back like your story kind of begins you know one of your formative memories in church is one of sexual abuse and so that's something where whether you maybe notice the impact of that or not at the time you know it's definitely something that is going to it's going to create a complicated relationship with the church with that environment. And even if it's something where, you know, something that wasn't necessarily foreseen by anybody or something that, you know, was expected, it's going to have effects on you mentally. Um, and I'm, I'm curious. And again, I, I know we don't have to, we don't have to dwell on this for too long, but I'm curious at the church in San Diego, when you had sort of a repeat situation happen, did you remember that, childhood trauma and think like how does this happen in two different churches like how can I not get away from this Um, or was it something where you know did you draw a connection between those two things at all or did you just you know deal with it situation by situation because because I hear that and I'm just thinking like if it was me I'd be thinking like man what are the odds like I'm in I'm in northern California this happens I go to southern California as an adult and this happens it's like the pattern even of two would be would really shake somebody and so did you did you have a feeling at that time of like man why is this happening again why at a church um or was it something where you know you didn't really connect those two things yeah for sure it did and i didn't even mention um i had also been sexually abused as a teenager as well so it was like it was all like increments of like 10 years basically. And I would, I, this went through my head so many times, like, what am I doing every 10 years that's causing, like, am I sinning? Am I doing something? Cause you know, cause you know how they teach you're wearing something or you must have done something. Um, and so like, what am I doing every 10 years to make this happen? You know? And as a teenager, was it at the same church as when you were, a child or was it a different church? No, no, it was, that was actually not in a church. Oh, okay. Okay. So it wasn't connected to that, that movement then. No, but it was covered up in the same way. Were you ever told a reason why they were covered up that, was it just always, you know, this is going to reflect negatively on the church. It's going to reflect negatively on that person. Were you not given a reason until that last time? How was that kind of explained to you as a, as a survivor of abuse? How did they justify that, that action of covering it up? It was pretty much the same every time of not wanting to hurt the name of Christ and not wanting to hurt the church. You know, they would say, you know, if people find out about this, they're going to think this is what church is about. Well, you know what? That is what those churches are about because they let it happen and they cover it up and they let those people stay there or they just move them to another church. That's the thing is like, it's one of those things where it's going to keep happening until it's called out. I mean, I appreciate you being willing to share because I know that's not something easy to, to discuss, but it is something where, you know, when it happens once, it's an anomaly. When it happens two, three times and it's covered up the same way, you have to start asking questions about kind of the belief systems of these organizations. And, you know, and when you prioritize, you know, the ministry above all else, then 
you're going to see that kind of stuff happen because you can't let anything damage that. You can't let, it's basically just maintaining reputation above anything else. And um, you know, Eric, one of the crazy things about all of that is during all of that time, I never questioned the church mm. or the leadership. I always questioned myself, Right. you know, I don't have enough faith or it's my fault that this is happening. So, you know, I need to change myself to the point where, when I was 14, I made another profession of faith after that happened, thinking that I must not be saved because mm. if I was, this would not be happening to me. Right. And then after we moved to Vegas and that had all happened, I thought I must not be saved. I must like not really get it. And I have to do it again. I, I right. did it again. I made a profession and got baptized again because oh. I didn't think that I had the spirit inside me to protect me and to guide me. Like I literally took it all on myself and it was destroying me from the inside out. Do you feel like the theology taught in college helped feel that kind of mental insecurity to where you did question yourself more? Um, or do you feel like, I mean, obviously I know your church background contributed to that, but um, I am always curious about the college background and how that informs your thought processes. Oh, for sure. I remember, um, I remember in chapel services where they would preach on different things and then they would, it was, I always thought it was really weird why they would do this, but it happened several times where a pastor would come in and preach and then, you know, how they have the invitation at the end, everyone bow your heads. If anyone talking about like letting go of things and people that have hurt you and then If any one of you has ever been sexually abused in your life, would you put your hand up and just let that go to God? And I remember thinking, why do they want to know who? And like, I've thought about this over and over. And I really, truly believe that when they do things like that, they're like praying on the weakness of those people. They know that they can go to those people and use them for different things, or they have an avid an avenue into that person because they've already been hurt in that way before and they can trick them again you know they know how to groom them they literally preach fear into those people well there's a lot of layers to that i mean um knowing that information about somebody and it's one of the it's one of the scariest things i think that i see in youth groups at youth conferences where you're filling out a ton of personal information is yeah you give leverage um to manipulators you give an open door to abusers to know that you have some i don't want to say i'm not saying weakness in the sense of they have a mental or emotional situation that can be exploited to abuse further places like golden state and with you know the history i mean it's it's not exactly a bright and sunny history of treber turning over abusers you know with guys like that it also gives them an idea of like what potential troublemakers to watch that could damage, you know, quote unquote, damage the ministry by coming forward. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff's really concerning. And again, it's something where someone could look at that and say, well, you're reading into it, but again, you have to look at patterns and you have to look at the way this stuff goes down. There is these consistent patterns of how this abuse happens. Um, and even you, you mentioned like there's patterns of who comes in to help facilitate this stuff. And, mentioning David Gibbs Jr. with the Christian Law Association, like all of that stuff is happening all over the country with the same players involved, the same methodology involved. And 
you at a certain point you have to start just saying like oh there is patterns and there are systems here and you know not all ifb churches are a b or c but there are definitely systems perpetuated in that movement that facilitate this kind of abuse i know i've heard a lot of people say well like jack Traber isn't like these people and he always Mm. like he has these systems set in place where he teaches them at the college to the men like if these things happen this is what you do you report but let me tell you I was close to Jack Traber. Throughout my high school years, we wrote letters like literally nonstop. I probably had 50 letters from him back and forth. Mm. And I was close. We were close. And through college, I would meet with him all the time. We were close. We were friends. And I'm telling you, when that assault happened at the church in San Diego, I didn't know what to do because I had no one. And I called him to get help. And do you know what he told me? It was inappropriate me inappropriate for me to ask him for help and then I should just do whatever my pastor said to do. Wow. So he's he's not a good person. I see a guy like Treber and you always want to believe like, okay, they're the they're strict on movie theaters and music, but they're not, you know, light on abuse and things like this. Or they're not they're not someone who's doing something actually wrong. They just might be really quirky, you know? Um, but I just see it like, I I just see these stories like, you know, with Mike Zachary and the weirdness of that whole situation of passing staff members along. I see, you know, this Cameron Giovanelli case that just recently came out. Like there's just, there's just things where I see these guys who know everything (laughs) and who, who are so in the weeds of their own ministries where there is no feasible way that they don't know the information that's coming out. And, you know, it's the same thing. I, I see this with Paul Chapel at West coast is, is he is not, he's not ignorant to the things going around him. And I have a hard time when I see these guys get up and say, I had no idea this was happening because they are so alpha owning their ministries. Like they have to there there's, and they know too many people. Like if you're, if you're Paul Chapel and friends with David Gibbs, or if you're Jack Treber and friends with all the people that Jack Treber's friends with, you're hearing the behind the scenes conversations constantly. And, you know, it's just, it's disingenuous to say that that's not happening. Yeah. And uh, I know like multiple victims of mm-hmm. people at North Valley wow. at Hopewell at, um, Timberwolves Church, I can't, Pleasant Valley. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, North, I, yeah, North, is it, oh, yeah, Pleasant Valley Baptist Church. Yeah. And I know the victims personally, they're too scared to come forward and to say mm. who it, who did things and that those pastors covered things up, but they are there. They right. are there. Multiple victims. Well, let, let me ask you this because, you know, there's a lot of layers to this and you've hit on some of this already, but. I, I look I mean the reality is yeah there's definitely more victims um you know you know this because you see every 10 years there's someone who comes out and says 10 years ago this happened I'm finally feel ready to come forward not just in churches that's just the nature of um especially sexual abuse cases it takes a lot of time to be able to accept what happened process it and then be able to talk about it it's just mental the idea of someone coming forward you know publicly 
24 to 48 hours later is just not realistic. It breaks my heart knowing that there's people who are even still attending these churches who have had something happen that's been covered up. What is it that's keeping them from coming forward? Is it an obligation to the church and feeling a spiritual, like I'd be sinning to speak out against the church? Or is it just pure, like all they know is that world and it's the fear of if they shun me and kick me out for this, I have nowhere to turn to. Like, do you feel like there's a common denominator with all of these stories? I feel like it's kind of a combination of things. Definitely how you mentioned um, the fear of coming out and saying something. Honestly, these pastors, they are able to victimize the victim over again Mm. and make them feel like they are the one at fault and it's their fault. And if anybody finds out about it, you know, it's going to look bad on them. It's not going to look bad on the other person. And they're able to just put them down and push them down so much. I've talked to these people and like, this is what, this is how the pastors treated them. It wasn't like, Mm. let's get you help. And like, let's do this. No, they're the bad person. Right. Even though they were underage, they were kids, they were teenagers. They were taken advantage of by spiritual leaders in the church that they trusted. And Mm. it's just awful. Like it, I think it's fear. And then fear of just coming out and fearing that nobody's going to believe them. And then, I mean, look at Sarah Jackson. She was so strong and she came out and she said the truth, but so many people attacked her and so many people said mean and hurtful and awful things against her. They're scared of that. Right. Right. So when that's all their world, what, what are they supposed to do? If they don't think they can survive on their own outside of that, like a lot of them, their whole family's in there. So they're probably going to get shunned by their family if they do that. What are they supposed to do? So what do you think? So obviously like this podcast is something where I think just by people hearing that there's similar stories is so vital to taking those steps to, you know, make an exit or to, you know, step away from these kind of abusive ministries or situations. But obviously that's not always going to get people there. So what can people who are advocating for abusers and want to, or advocate, I'm sorry, advocating for those who've been abused, what is something they can do to um, create opportunities for victims to come forward in a safe and, you know, secure way? Honestly, that's, it's tough because when you are still in that whole world, it's hard to know that there is a safe place out of it. So unless those victims are actually willing to look outside of that a little bit, it's going to be really hard for them. You know, I mean, I remember being in it and thinking that there was literally nothing else, that there are no options. There's literally nothing I can do, but do what my pastor says, do what my husband says. Like I honestly, then that sounds ridiculous as an adult, but I thought there was nothing else. I thought I had to obey them. I had to do what they said. I did not realize that I could think on my own. I could think for myself and that there is actually help outside of that. So just, I think putting people that have come out of it, putting encouraging things on Facebook when you're still friends with those people that are in it, you know, not, not bashing the IFB, but like just encouraging things about being able to be set free 
and how that you are not going to be miserable and a horrible person if you step out of that because that's not true. Uh, No, I think that's really helpful information. And it's something I think that people need to hear is like, you know, one, the show is helpful for victims, but I think there's also people listening who are trying to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen. And if it does, because it is no matter what it is going to happen at some point, it's, it's the nature of, you know, just, just the pure numbers of people. If you have enough people, something bad's going to happen. It's not necessarily always going to be sexual abuse, could be physical abuse or mental abuse, but that thing does happen. So when a victim doesn't feel comfortable coming forward, I want people to know how to create an environment where it's safe for someone to do so um, and what steps they can take uh, when someone does to help them feel comfortable um, and encouraged. So I am curious for you um, because it it seems now that you're um, maybe doing a lot better and you seem like you're, you know, in in a much better place than, you know, the times that you're describing in these churches. Um, can you talk a little bit about your kind of personal healing journey and how you've been able to grow and develop and feel encouragement, you know, stepping outside of this movement? So there's several different factors that go into that. One was I got, when I was still in Vegas, the last few months there, I ended up getting a therapist because I was just, I was suicidal all the time. I was on medication. It was, it was a wreck. It was a complete wreck. I was so self-destructive. It's not even funny. And I didn't even care. I didn't care if I died one one hour or the next. It didn't matter to me, which is sad because I had two children and I saw zero hope. But I started seeing a therapist and she was actually not a Christian. Um, and she's the first one. It was her um, and a friend that I met online that just was there for me a constant every single day um, telling me, you know, there's life like you can be happy you're allowed to be happy um you you your own choices you don't have to obey and do everything that any man ever tells you to do whether it's a man in the church a spiritual leader um anyone you are your own person nobody can tell you what to do all the time you are able to make your own choices so once i finally realized that and then i was able to just get out and be on my own. It was having a couple close connections with people that I had met that just showed me what normal is. Um, I got an apartment on my own. I bought a car on my own. Um, Just steps like that that seem for women that grew up in that and that were married. I was married for 11 years in that. And I never thought for my myself. I never did things on my own. My husband took care of everything. He took care of all the finances. He took, he made all the decisions for our family and I just submitted and followed. Just being able to come out of that and make slow steps with that, make a decision. Oh, I'm going to decide where I'm going to eat. I'm going to decide what I like to wear now. What do I like to wear? You know, just stuff like that. Right. It's that semblance of independence um, that can go a long way. Um, cause you couldn't be further from independence in your background. Cause you, you essentially went from, you know, being under the rule of parents to being under the rule of a college to being under the rule of a husband. And, you know, so I think just having that sense of 
independence sounds like that's been key, you know, to find out who you are and work through your own emotions and not have somebody dictate your emotions and what you should believe for you, you know? And so, yeah, I think that's super, super helpful. So look, there's, there's a million things that you talked about that I think are really important. Like, I mean, we could have, have a whole nother hour conversation about mental health and the way that mental health is viewed in the church. Um, but I really feel like we kind of found something that's really important. And I think you sharing your story, how you've been able to move past this stuff, how you feel churches should respond and really identifying the patterns of why this happens is so crucial. And um, I think it's going to be pretty invaluable for anybody who's listening. So I, I really appreciate you. I really appreciate you sharing that. I hope that my story can give someone out there some hope to know that there is life. Like you can be happy and it's not a bad thing to be happy. Like so many times we're taught. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.